0: October 25th. It is the church's commemoration of Dorcas, Lydia, and Phoebe, the faithful women. And when we have church history questions, we go to our professor of historical theology from Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Dr. Joel Ilowski. Dr. Ilowski, thanks so much for joining us on the Coffee Hour today.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure to be with you. Thank you.
0: So this is I guess this is New Testament history right so Dorcas Lydia and Phoebe where do we where do we read about Dorcas, Lydia, and Phoebe, and and we can dig into more about what we know about them. But where do we find them in Scripture?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you pretty much have to go to the book of Acts. That's where you're going to have them referenced. Uh, you don't see them referenced in Paul's letters, actually. You get others referenced in them, but not these women. So I'd say, yeah, the book of Acts is where we'd have to go. So we got the New Testament, not the Old Testament. Maybe some other day we can do all the Old Testament faithful women. There's, there's
0: several of those. Mm-hmm. One or yeah, that's two. true. Yeah, that's right.
1: <laughs> One or two, yeah. So what do we know about their stories from Scripture? Well, I mean, overall, it's kind of fascinating to me. It always has been. And I talked to the deaconesses here about the fact that women were, had played an important role in the life of the church, and often it was like in support of the gospel in terms of sometimes financial support, but sometimes even probably accompanying the apostles on their missionary journeys at times to give them entree into people's homes, especially women's homes and things like that. So it's it's rather interesting to think about that, because we often just think these apostles were kind of like lone rangers. But Paul actually talks about some of these women, even as, well, the Greek word is synergoi, like they're fellow workers with him, he used that term in Philippians. But Dorcas is an interesting case, since I see you referenced her first. The, the text there speaks of her as a female disciple, a mathatria which I find fascinating because I think that's the only example where we have a female disciple called that, although there obviously are female disciples as well as male disciples. And uh, of course, with Dorcas, she was somebody who served the widows there in, in Joppa, I guess it was Joppa being a coastal town in Israel. And she was known for, the scripture says, for her good works, for her service to the community and her acts of charity. So that's that's in fact what a lot of these women have as kind of their focus really. They're kind of the, the social arm, if you will, of the church. So I I love that idea that they really a church and probably help spread the gospel more through those acts of deeds than perhaps through some of the preaching that happened.
0: The the order in which they are listed is by no means any anything that, that I brought about. I was just using the order in which they were listed for the commemoration on the yeah. for the, the church calendar. So
1: Oh well I thought uh, I was maybe inspired. I didn't know. <laughs>
0: no if I understand, when we read about Dorcas, we also, we might find her by a different name. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's correct. Sometimes we see her listed all in the text there as uh, Tabitha, which they say means Dorcas. So, yeah, it's interesting that they chose Dorcas versus Tabitha because Tabitha was probably her name and Dorcas might have been like a nickname or something like that. And some scholars have even thought she might have been a slave and that's one of the nicknames a slave might get. So, who knows, doesn't say, but uh, yeah, Mm -hmm. she's, she's uh, known as Tabitha or as Dorcas. Yeah, that's right.
0: Interesting. I find that interesting that throughout scripture, so many people have multiple names, Mm -hmm. like, like Thomas called Didymus or Thomas the twin, right? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: How many people have, so, so she's Tabitha, also known as, Dorcas. Anything else about Tabitha or Dorcas? Well, and I'd just before? like to
1: say something a little bit about those names. I mean, the Bible is very, very keen on names. <laughs> and they, these are not anonymous people. Sometimes we hear about the Ethiopian eunuch, he's anonymous. But a lot of, that's the thing about the particularity of the New Testament, that this was not just... Um, Kind of a movement without any significant. It was figures who were very much by name. They were known by name. They were probably acquaintances. People knew each other. They were in circles of friends and perhaps even family. So I, I, I find it interesting that the Bible actually wants to make sure that her name means Dorcas, this kind of stuff. So I just love that aspect of it too. But well, some think that. Well, she she probably was, well, she was, she took care of the widows. So I think one of the questions comes up as to whether she was actually a widow herself, and perhaps maybe even one of the proto deaconesses, as they talk about, which I guess we'll, we'll get into a little bit later. The term isn't used, but she, uh, of course, provided clothing for the, of the poor widows. So you had in these communities, you had some very wealthy women, what we would probably call patrons, and they were probably the ones who the church met at their homes, actually. So that's an interesting aspect of this, too, because you have not only Dorcas in that case, but you have perhaps Rufus. Yeah, the mother of Rufus, sorry. That's in Romans 16. You got Mary, the mother of Mark. You got Tabitha from Joppa. You have Lydia from Philippi. All these women who actually probably housed the churches initially, since they didn't have church buildings, per se, until maybe like the third century. So who knows? She might have been one of the uh, founders of the Well, at least of the church there, or at least they used her house for that. So I'm not sure, but that's something I might guess about. Very good. So what do we know about Lydia? Yeah, Lydia is another fascinating character. And of course, in the ancient world, they had these God-fears, as we call them, which were not really, they were kind of like Jewish converts, kind of not. They didn't like take the final plunge, shall we say, but they were fascinated with Judaism and they would actually worship the true God. So that's how she's she's described there in Acts 16. So you have, you have let's see, Tabitha and in Acts 9. You've got Lydia in chapter 16, beginning at verse 11, and Paul's visiting her there. And he finds her interestingly enough, outside the city walls. And it wasn't because they were outcasts or anything like that. It just seems like, well, this was called a prosoike, a place of prayer where these women were gathering. So they were having their LWML Bible study out by, the, <laughs> by the river there. and And Paul just happens to come upon them and gets to speak to him there, and they were a ready audience for him, I'm sure too. And and then they specifically don't mention, they don't mention any of the other women's names, but they do mention Lydia's, Luke does, and says that she's from the city of Thyatira. So my question was, well, what what is she doing there in Philippi then, if she's from Thyatira? And most people think that she probably was some type of businesswoman. And it was okay in Roman law, by the way, for women to be businesswomen. Uh, they had to have like I think three kids or something like that to qualify, but usually often you had the business kind of in conjunction with your husband. The women's were the ones who ran it and the men were the ones who received the benefit Enough. So she was a seller of purple and you kind of go, well, what's the big deal about purple? Well, it was probably a, it was a pretty rare kind of dye that you would have with the clothing. It usually meant that it was meant for people in higher society. So she was probably serving the people who were buying Gucci bags and Prada. That would be her clientele, <laughs> shall we say. So she probably had a pretty good business, was probably pretty wealthy. And it, and it sounds like that Paul ended up using her house for the start of the church there in Philippi. Because we know at the end of that chapter, 16, was 16, when, after he's been arrested and released, He goes to Lydia's house, and it says he talks to the faithful there. So here's somebody again who was probably a patron of the church. She she probably took care of many of the people, but she also opened up her home for worship and allowed herself and it says all her household to be baptized, and that had to be something too because it describes it as her household, not her husband's household, which says that maybe she was a widow, but the text doesn't say for sure. But that household wouldn't wouldn't have just been her and her kids. It probably would have been well, it could have even been her slaves or her business associates. I mean, sometimes these households were pretty big. So you kind of get a picture of somebody who was quite well off, but also somebody searching for God. And Paul happened to show up and introduced her to Jesus and the gifts that he had to give. So it's quite a fascinating story that way.
0: It is fascinating. Just the, just the being a seller of purple mm-hmm. goods, I think, is is interesting own as you related that to modern day like the, the higher end mm-hmm. things that someone might buy and, and what who the who might purchase that. Moving on to anything else about Lydia before we go on to Phoebe.
1: Let's see. I'm just trying to think. I mean, she's she's one of those people that I expected to be mentioned in the Book of Philippians because I taught mm-hmm. that course, and I'm like you know, where's Lydia? (laughs) Because she's there in Acts, but she's not mentioned unless you can find her. Maybe do a Google search or something, but I didn't see her there. (laughs) So I'm wondering what happened to Lydia that she doesn't get mentioned in Paul's letter, Inquiring Minds Want to Know. And I thought maybe, perhaps, uh, maybe she went back to Thyatira. Thyatira. That could be one possibility. Mm-hmm. Or they do have two women that are listed in in the Book of Philippians. I remember that. I think it's in chapter four, someplace, or maybe three. Iodia and Syntyche. And some mm-hmm. scholars have thought, well, maybe she's one of those, and that Lydia was kind of more of a, a title from where she was from, Lita or something like that. That could be. I mean, the text doesn't say, but it's it's always those missing pieces that cause me to say, why isn't it in there? And there's something. Well, I guess we'll just. Have to leave that for when we get to heaven and ask Jesus. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Just one other thing with Lydia that I thought was rather interesting.
0: Hmm. Certainly. We, we don't want to impose on the text anything that's not there, but certainly learn from what is there mm-hmm. and, and gain from that. We have more to talk about as we look at the commemoration of Dorcas, Lydia, and Phoebe, the faithful women. Our guest today, the Rev. Dr. Joel Ilowski, Professor of Historical Theology at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. We'll continue the conversation in just a moment right here on The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates.
1: I'm Sarah Golseth.
0: Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Goldseth. Today, the church commemorates Dorcas, Lydia, and Phoebe, the faithful women. Our guest today taking a look at this history is the Reverend Dr. Joel Ilowski, professor of historical theology at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. I find this so fascinating. I love this when we can sit down and look at the church's history with Dr. Ilowski, mm-hmm. just because. Well, it's it's fun to learn church history and to, to learn <laughs> like to dig into the New Testament, but when Dr. Lowski just shares all of his wisdom with us, it's fascinating. Yes. All right, so we we've talked about Dorcas and Lydia, and now moving on to Phoebe. What do we know about Phoebe?
1: Well, Phoebe's a fascinating figure. She she appears in Romans 16, when Paul has that that whole list of people that he wants to send greetings to and things. But in this case, she's not one who he's sending greetings to. I mean, when you go to the chapter there in 16, he says, I commend to you our our sister Phoebe, a, a deaconess of the church that's in Korea. That's one way you could translate that. So we get that, that term deaconess or deacon in the text. And of course, a lot of speculation has been done about this as as to whether it was actually an office at that time, oh, it could have been. But anyway, that's how Paul refers to her as a as a diakonon. I mean, the word, by the way, in Greek. Um is, doesn't really have a gender. It's It depends what, what article you put with it. So it can be either masculine or feminine. Obviously, in this case, it's feminine because of the name. But Phoebe is, she's called the deaconess of the church at synchrea And of course, Sancria would have been a, a seaport village right outside of Corinth there, probably right next to Corinth. So she's she's bringing greetings for Paul from Corinth to the, the church in Rome. And I think she probably was like the messenger who brought this letter to them. And we know that, that they always had certain messengers who would carry these letters. She wasn't the writer of the letter, because we have that listed later. Uh, I forget what his name was. It's uh, Tertius, I think, something like that. But So she is this, this messenger who brings a letter to Corinth, and, and it says that you receive her in the Lord as befits the saints, and help her in whatever she may require from you, for she has been not my... My English text as a helper of many and of myself as well. I mean, there's an interesting term there in Greek. It's like um, look, you're pro- prostatitis. Yeah, that's what it is. So you know what prostatitis is, right? I'm just oh, yeah. kidding. You never know. But it's actually a, like a, a patron kind of thing. Or it's it's not just, it, it, it could be helper, but it could also be patron or in the form of having that she actually took care of Paul in some ways, uh, financially probably. And also it sounds like a bunch of other people as well, because he talks about her being a, a patron of me and of myself as well. And so that's another example, as I mentioned before, about these women who were pretty much undergirding the financial and... um well, material support of the church. So she's probably one of those who did that and in they there outside of Corinth. So that's, that's a fascinating kind of little insight into these synergoi, these fellow workers that Paul talks about. And again, he refers to the women in that way. Now, they didn't serve liturgically in the church as priests or anything like that. And often we kind of get that idea that, well, then they weren't important. And I think that's just a mistake, just like it is in the church today, to recognize that everybody has their gifts to give to the church and that these women were indispensable for the life of the church. Without them, Paul probably wouldn't have been able to travel. He probably wouldn't have been taken care of. And we know that he took care of himself in terms of his tent baking, but she probably provided um, a lot of material support for that church there. And perhaps the question is, what was she doing in Rome? Well, she was sent there by Paul, And maybe she also had some business there to do. I don't know. Could be a possibility anyway. So that's, again, one of the things the text doesn't say, but I could see Paul saying, you're heading up to Rome. You've got some business there. Why don't you take this letter that I'm writing to them that I need, you to, I need to be delivered? I don't know. What do you think about that? That is interesting. I love I love learning about the lives of these women as as real actual people in our church history and the the roles that they played in the early church with with the apostles. It's just it's it's really cool. And I want to talk about a little bit with Phoebe. What is the connection of Phoebe to the the deaconess at Diaconal office today in our church? Yeah. Well, I mean, she's kind of seen as the the patron saint of deaconesses in one sense, because she's the one who's called that in Scripture. But as I said before, it's a a question whether she actually had the office at that time, or if she was, the word deacon can also be servant or minister in that way. But, you know, we don't have that much problem with Saint deacons served in the church. And deaconesses were probably not part of the clerical order, as we would say. They had bishops, presbyters, and deacons, but uh, that doesn't mean that deaconesses were unimportant in the life of the church. And uh, what I find fascinating about this, too, is you can go outside of scripture where you see uh, deaconesses, or in Latin, there's ministrei, that they're referenced. Uh, there's this letter between the the governor of Bithynia called Pliny to Trajan, who was the emperor at the time. And this, so this is at the end of the first century, beginning of the second century. Are you familiar with this letter at all?
0: I'm not.
1: I've heard of Pliny, but not the letter. Yeah, the <laughs> letter. Letters, well, you can actually even find it on the internet, so you know it's real then. It's this fascinating letter that Pliny is asking, what should we do with the Christians? Because the uh, Domitian and these guys had been persecuting, but people were turning on the Christians sometimes just on the basis of anonymous tips and things like that, and the government was trying to get a handle on it. They were still putting Christians on trial and putting them to death, but Pliny was trying to figure out what's going on with these with these Christians. So guess what he does? He tells us that he actually uh, interviews a couple of ministraeas and deaconesses and. And when I say interview, I don't mean in a kind way. It sounds Ooh. like he ended up torturing them so that he could Ooh. find out what was happening in these Christian communities, which they explained to him how they worship some someone named Christus as like a god and these kind of things. And they get up early on Sunday morning and sing songs and hymns. And I mean, it's it's a fascinating description because it's coming from the governor of Bithynia, who's not a Christian. But he's, he's trying to describe what the Christians do at the end of the first century, beginning of the second, and, and he got his information from deaconesses. So, and these deaconesses probably paid. Well, who knows if they paid with their lives, but they definitely paid with a lot of pain and suffering. Because he does specifically mention that I had to torture them to to get out of them what was going on. Or hmm. so. I mean think about that you have these deaconesses who are serving the church sometimes putting their very lives on the line and we hear about this later in the life of the church then in like the, well, the end of the second century around 170s 180s you've got women listed there some as deaconesses who were ultimately martyred for their faith under Marcus Aurelius's reign and these things so you know what does Phoebe have to do with kind of the later deaconess movement? I think she's kind of the first that you see in a line of women serving in the church that later on, especially in the East, kind of gets developed and into an an order of the church. And what I mean by that is it's, it's actually officially recognized in the fourth century at the Council of Nicaea, the Canon 19, I believe it is. They talk they specifically mention deaconesses as whether they should have hands laid on them when they come into the the church from a a heterodox community or things like that. So, and by the Council of Chalcedon, you do have them at least in the East. It sounds like there are even, there's some type of laying on of hands that happens. It's not the same as a bishops or a priests ordination, but it is something where the church is designating them as servants of the church. And I suppose if you wanted to do further research on your own on this, the document to go to is the third-century Didascalia. That's a, a text that's from Syria where it has a it has a beautiful description of what deaconesses do. I just recently edited a book on this, so that's why it's fresh in my mind. But they they were very important also for the bishops. They were his eyes and ears among the women's population. As I said earlier, when apostles went door to door or when they went and visited women, they couldn't go in by themselves, and sometimes they weren't allowed, especially in Eastern cultures, to go in at all. So the women were there to kind of do that for them. And in the Didascalia, it actually talks about their role in serving the poor, but it also even talks about their role in baptism, since they baptized in the nude. So, that would be not the best idea for a bishop to do the baptizing. In that sense, I mean, he did the baptizing, but the, the deaconesses were the ones who anointed them with oil. And then it says, when they rose from the water, the women were the one who instructed them in the mysteries of the faith, too. So, it's a fascinating kind of description there that you have in the Didascalia that way. So, those are just some of the things that the deaconesses would do, at least according to the liturgical orders that they had.
0: You don't have that third century piece in your library, Sarah?
1: Unfortunately, no, not at the moment. No, okay. you can find it on the internet. <laughs> um,
0: you know. Ah, on the internet. So you you have made some just really helpful points, and particularly mm-hmm. talking about the office of deaconess today. And while we don't know necessarily if Phoebe served in an official office, she certainly was a a, a servant of the church. And so, what does the the recognition of Phoebe and Lydia and Dorcas and their service what does it say or mean? Especially since they are are, are recognized, uh, they're mentioned by name in the scriptures. What does this say or mean of their service, and and what does it not say as well?
1: Right. Well, I mean, the first thing I'd like to say is what it says to me, at least, is that women were very important in the life, in the origins of Christianity, right from the very beginning. I mean, even with Jesus, of course, and the three women who came to the tomb. I mean, you have all of that, and so the the issue of deaconess, the church recognized from a very early. Um, early time from the very beginning, that women were an important part of the life of the church and also needed to have that that service. I mean, it, it is interesting that the term deaconess kind of has some ambiguity with it, and it seems to almost be one of those those positions in the life of the church that is to be tailored to the congregation's needs. And so you see deaconesses doing different things in different places that way. So I, I kind of like that because it shows that the church didn't just have a, a static understanding of the office, but that it actually was something that served the life of the church. So in terms of deaconesses for today, sometimes as I talk to our deaconess students, they wonder, does the church even know what we are supposed to do or what we do? And I, I said, they probably don't. But that's when you get to kind of help them see that and help them see the important role that women have had in the life of the church and can continue to have. I know they were very important when I started my church in New Jersey. I relied on the women for a lot of the things, and especially they were helpful in spreading the gospel, which it seems to me that's what the women here, the deaconesses, were doing as well, even as they also served as a social arm kind of for the, the congregation and making sure that the poor, the, the widows, or the women who were sometimes less, had less advantages, that they were taken care of. So I think our deaconesses today are, are part of a, a proud train, shall we say, of uh, service in the life of the church. Extending that even further, what does learning about these women and their service, what can we learn, especially as women who maybe aren't called to be deaconesses, what can we learn from their stories about serving in the church today? Yeah, well, that each woman has a wonderful gift to give to the church and that our Lord uses the talents that He sees and that He knows in each of our hearts. I think what I like women who even who aren't deaconesses, I've, I've used this Bible study outside of deaconess classes, is to say that God created both men and women, both are in his kingdom and both have their service for the life of the church in different ways, which each are important. And I don't think, sometimes I think we pit one against the other and kind of make it a power struggle. And I would simply say, no, recognize that God has given his gifts to his church to serve it in the many ways that he's got it for this world so i would say rejoice in the gifts you've been given and look for ways to serve and as these women did i'm sure to pray about it that god would open those doors of service for you and for all men and women i would say that way that's my kind of take away if you will <laughs>
0: Our guest today, the Reverend Dr. Joel Ulowski, Professor of Historical Theology at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, helping us with the history as the Church observes Dorcas, Lydia, and Phoebe, the faithful women. Dr. Ulowski, thank you so much for being our guest on The Coffee Hour today.
1: Well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates.
1: I'm Sarah Goldseth.